Welcome to Martha Runs the World, a podcast with a new take on running, fitness, and all things health-oriented. I'm Martha Hughes, your host, and each week I present a new topic that is of interest to all runners. Welcome to episode 195 of Martha Runs the World. Thank you so much for joining me. I truly appreciate it. I love that you listen to my show, and if you listen every week, you are awesome. My guest this week is Michael Seeley of Elite Mindset Coaching and the host of Sports Psychology Podcast. He is going to help us with anxiety during racing. I don't know if you have anxiety. I know a little bit of anxiety is natural, but I probably have more anxiety than I should. I don't race a lot. You probably noticed that. There's a few reasons for it. One of the reasons that I don't enjoy it as much as others do. Some runners race every weekend. They love it. They see it as a time to socialize and have fun. Racing isn't as much fun for me as it is for other people. I see it just as a source of of stress, and I would love to enjoy it like other people do, but I just really don't, so I want to have more fun with it. So he's going to help us do that today. And also, afterwards, I'm going to tell you about my little virtual half marathon that I did over the weekend. So first, here is Michael Seeley. Will you welcome to the program? He is has a master's in counseling psychology, so he does a lot of counseling with athletes as far as their mental game goes. He's uh, he also has a podcast called the Sports Psychology Podcast, and he used to race in cycling. Michael Seeley, hi Michael, how are you? Hi Martha, how's it going? Good, good. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very grateful that you are, and I wanted to talk to you about sports psychology. I mean, it's such a big and interesting science. Uh, when did you first think this might be uh, the career for you? You know, it goes all the way back to age 15. I was starting to get really good at bike racing in the Midwest near Madison, Wisconsin, where kind of where I grew up in Wisconsin. And um, my parents were getting divorced, and they sent me to a psychotherapist. Um, and I was certainly very, very resistant at first, but this guy not only helped me through that tough period of time in my life, but he also helped me in bicycle racing. And I think a seed was planted early on that there's this mental aspect to sport performance that is just so, so important. And that was really the start of it. I didn't think I would get into mental performance coaching and sports psychology. I was really very serious about bicycle racing and pursued that very, very seriously until about age 24, um, started college like on the late side, and then um, rediscovered my love for sports psychology probably right around age 35. I was working in the tech business sector in San Francisco, not really enjoying it and got more involved in psychology and started riding my bike again a little more seriously and went to grad school and got my degree in counseling psychology. So that's kind of the journey there. Well, there's a lot there. Most of what we do is, I mean, of course, a lot of it is our physical work, but a lot of it is mental. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, running, cause my, my listeners are my runners, obviously, but yeah. running is so much mental, especially as we get into the longer distances, you know, with ultra running, it's, it's, you're out there and it's a mental game for sure. Um, yeah. Um, you know, my background definitely is in bicycle racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the longest bike ride I ever did was 200 miles in one day. So I can kind of relate. Yeah. It's not as arduous as running where you're, you know, you're pounding on the pavement. Um, right. but I can relate to that. The longest run that I'd honestly ever done is 13 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of like a half marathon, but marathons on my bucket list. And I can, I really appreciate distance running. I think it's, uh, yeah, like you said, so mental and it's, it's really impressive. Well, yeah. And, and if you're out on the trails doing a race, doing a, a hundred mile race for, you know, 30 hours and you're out on those trails and you're out by yourself in the middle of the night, it's a mental game. <laughs> it really Absolutely. is. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think sports are a huge help, but I'm going to bring this up early. What drives me crazy is that, that people that say we're well, running is, is my therapy. Well, no, it's not. If running is your therapy, then you don't really need therapy or, or maybe it's no replacement for therapy. It's an addition to therapy. But if you need therapy, therapy is therapy. It's not, it shouldn't be replaced by something. Is that correct? Well, I think it was, is what does the person mean by that? Right. Running is my therapy. So if somebody does have like a legitimate need for therapy, say maybe it's the only thing that keeps them from drinking, or maybe it um, alleviates their really severe anxiety or keeps them from falling into a severe depression, then yeah, if they're saying it runnings my therapy in that respect, yeah, you're right. They actually need to see a psychotherapist, I would say. Um, but if they mean it in the sense of like, Oh, it's my, my therapy. It sort of cheers me up. Um, I think that's, you know, two differences in the semantics there. But yeah, you know, um, in, in my business, what I do, uh, when athletes come to see me for improving their sport performance, um, because I have a degree in counseling psychology, I like to ask lots of questions and, and find out why they're, they're coming to see me. And if it's on the side of, you know, therapy, uh, as in they really have some severe anxiety issues or depressive issues, which running is only kind of like a band-aid to cover up. You know, I tell them very frankly that there needs to be some deeper repair work going on there before they can start, you know, more of the sports performance end of it. So, so yeah, you're right. Like, um, a lot of athletes, I think, well, not a lot, but certainly we've seen that even at the high level, sort of like at the Olympics in, in Japan with like Naomi Osaki and um, Naomi Osaka, sorry, and um, Simone Biles, some examples of athletes who probably needed some psychotherapy um, before heading to, you know, a big event like that. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it, it helps to vet out what the issue is is the athlete coming to see you for uh, performance or there's some deeper things there that need some repair work on. Yeah, that is for sure. I know you talk about a lot about men, but I think it's difficult for everyone to seek out help. And it's also extremely difficult to find help these days. Is that right? I would say, yeah, um, definitely there is that still that stigma attached to seeking help seeking psychological help. Uh, there's still that thing, you know, I'm crazy or I should be tougher or there's, you know, there's something defective or wrong with me. If I 
if I seek out help. So there's a stigma factor. And as you mentioned, also tough to find help. I think there's not a lot of education around seeking help. Um, I think that needs to change, like uh, maybe teaching some more psychology courses in, in high school, anxiety management courses in high school, because I definitely have people who reach out to me who said they've, you know, tried to find the right, the right therapist, or they've been looking around and it's hard to find. Um, this was a two pronged thing. I think just reducing stigma would be really helpful. There's a lot of athletes doing that right now. I think uh, Michael Phelps has done, done a lot for athletes, making it okay for them to seek help. Yeah. Um, I think also just more awareness around how to seek help. Like if you reach out for a phone call with a therapist or a sports psychologist, it's just a call. Like, you know, you're, you're not committing to anything and you can ask a lot of questions. So I tell people sometimes that are maybe not a good fit for working with me. I'll give them some education on trying to find the right person. So I, I tell people out there, just, just keep trying. It's a process. You may have to talk to like five or 10 people before you find someone and you'll kind of know, like, on the initial call with someone or meeting them or checking out their social media, if, if they're a good fit or something will resonate with you there. So that's true. Phelps has done a lot. Also, Anton Krupika is a, is a, an ultra runner who has had some serious bouts with depression and, and with major depression and, and is, has been very open about that. And he's done a lot in the running community to make it more of an honest discussion. I think that's very brave of him and I really commend him for that because it's, it's not alone. There are people who care about them and, and the people have to remember that they're not by themselves on this really. I had asked you to be on the show because I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of races and I never have been. I don't mind the race once it starts. Um, but the night before in the morning pre-race is very stressful for me. I get really, and I get anxiety for it because I just don't like the start of the race because I'm, I'm a slow runner and I know I'm going to be at the back of the race. I know that it's okay once it gets going and I start slow and I start and I never finish last. <laughs> I just don't, but I, and I usually pick people off as I go, but I just hate the beginning of the race because I see everybody take off and then there's me at the back and it's just, it's so stressful. How, how can I make it less stressful for myself? Well, I think if we if we get into sort of the belief behind that at the start, that somehow uh, it's better to be faster and start faster, right? So if there is an intrinsic belief there that you have, which would I'm guessing there is, I'm not sure. Otherwise, there wouldn't be as much anxiety. Um, so it might be changing that belief and reinforcing a new belief in yourself. Something like like you were just alluding to. I start slower, but I pick off riders or pick off racers. I never finish last. Like kind of like the tortoise and the hare kind of thing, right? We know that fable and how, how in the end the tortoise wins. Mm-hmm. So it could be something like that of just making it. Um, if, if you think about it, what what inspires people. So if if you're out there running just for yourself or to compare to other people, there's going to be a lot of anxiety. But if you're, if you're out there to inspire others, like I don't know if you've watched some races where you see people who are really pushing themselves at the end and maybe even finishing last. Like that's kind of inspiring Mm -hmm. actually to see Mm -hmm. somebody make it all the way to the finish line. So if you frame it like I am here as an example to inspire others who may not be as fast as the very, you know, from people starting, 
and they're going to see me out there and they're going to be inspired. And this is going to be, you know, my identity is I'm going to be the tortoise and I'm going to show how I play the long game and I'm, I'm doing it for enjoyment and for, for finishing, uh, finishing strong. So it could be something like that, you know, getting really solid on your, your beliefs of maybe what you've been buying into is that it's, uh, somehow these people are better or it's, it, it is better to be faster at the front and, and, and really actually believing that it's okay to be the tortoise. So I would start there with, with the beliefs and maybe even just with that, that might reduce some of your anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Good points, actually. And, and none of us should be, I mean, unless you're an elite runner and you're going to finish in the top of your, you know, of the race, nobody should be racing against everyone. We're all racing against our own selves or, or we're just ha- out there having fun, really. And, and I'm out there just enjoying myself. I, I'm not racing against anyone. I'm, I'm out there. I'm just out there enjoying the day on the trail. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. You know, I know that I'm not going to compete anyone. And, and as long as I finish the course in, in the allotted time, I'm good. Yeah. I would say also, Martha, like what you're just saying right now, it could be helpful for you to write down bullet points of some of those stronger reasons why you're doing it. And then uh, even laminate that and have that review that right before the race. Ooh. So really reinforcing the real reasons why you're doing the running. Um, so that could be helpful too. And with a lot of repetition, you could even do it before training so that it's just really ingrained in your brain. Like this, these are the reasons why I run. And that way it'll, it'll sort of, um, cloud out the, 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 the trap of thinking that, Oh, the people up front are better. Right. So if you find yourself falling into that trap, uh, then you can always look at your sheet of paper or you can have it even memorized and, and visualize the bullet points in, in your head of the reasons why you do your sport. That is amazing. Thank you very much. That's a really good point. I just got inspired over that. Thank you very, very much for that. Yeah. I truly sure. appreciate that. Um, what are a couple lessons that you learned from your years of bike racing? I know this is a big question. Bike racing that we can put to use in our own races. Let's see. There's a lot of lessons there. Um, I know. I know. Just, just, a, just a couple off the top of your head. Yeah, I would say lessons are number one. If you are feeling down or feeling unmotivated or feeling like I'm just going to quit my sport or I'm going to, you know, stop my season halfway. If you're thinking that, um, I'll say that that's pretty that's normal. I would say the best athletes in the world have those thoughts. So don't blame yourself. But I would say get help. So that could look, you know, a bunch of different ways. It could be talking to a teammate, talking to your coach. If you have a coach, um, talking to a friend and just getting it, getting it out, not, not having it a secret and being transparent. I think that is one thing that I learned. I think for a number of years, I kept a lot of stuff to myself where I was on the edge of burnout quite a bit mentally, and I just hid it. I never told anyone. It was kind of like this shameful thing. Um, so that would be the biggest lesson right there is just talk about what's troubling you. Um, everyone else is going through the same stuff, um, and that might actually inspire other people to, you know, to talk more as well. Um, so that's, you know, that's the biggest one. Um, there's there's a bunch of other lessons, too. Um, I don't know if you want to hear more. <laughs> sure, please. Get, get a couple more. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when I had when I did my best uh, racing, I was um, 
doing doing it in a way where this may sound kind of psycho, but <laughs> in a way where I reframed pain as as like my friend or pain as something that helps me grow pain as something that is necessary for growth that I love pain, not, and again, not in like a psycho way, but more of like when I am training or racing and feeling that edge of pain, I go, yes, thank goodness. This is making me stronger. This is making me stronger. And when I leaned into the pain, then I got better results and and just had a lot more confidence. So that would be the, the number two big thing is your relationship with pain and looking at it as like, please bring it on, give me more pain. And again, I'm not, not in like in a masochistic kind of way, but more of like this pain is helping me grow. And you got to be careful with that because you don't want to overtrain. You don't want to push yourself to some, um, you know, horrible injury while you're running. I'm not talking about, you know, pushing through pain in, in that way. I'm, I'm talking about the, the good natural pain that comes with pushing your edge and running. And everyone, every runner knows what's like a healthy pain. And then what's the kind of pain where you're running through an injury and destroying yourself. Right. So again, it's, it's your relationship with pain, changing it um, from when will the race end to I, I wish this race were 10 more miles. It's a hundred mile race. I wish it 110. Yeah. Like, and then that recalibrates your brain of like, oh, this is all about growth. It's all about growth. So um, pain uh, is growth. So that's that's another big one right there. Well, you know what Ken Clover, the founder of the Leadville 100 race said, he said, make friends with pain and you'll never run alone. Mm. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I've raced, I've run so many times, so many races in pain. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's true though. You, you have to get used to the, the normal pain. Yeah. As you said, you, and you, you learn to distinguish the difference between injury pain and normal pain. Right. And I think too many people live their lives in comfort and don't understand that, you know, we got to get used to that, that little bit of pain that we have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now you mentioned that anxiety is a call to action. Why is that? We'll be right back. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Well, it starts with thinking about the purpose historically for anxiety. If we go back way back to hunter-gatherer times, which essentially our body and our brain is a standard issue, hunter-gatherer body brain <laughs> hasn't, you know, evolved quickly enough for modern times. So if you think about the purpose of anxiety way back when, which was there is a problem or danger and my body is getting prepared for higher performance. So that is the purpose is to sort of amplify your performance. And if you think about it that way, that it's an, it's a signal for action of taking some sort of action. So if there's anxiety, it means there's a problem and you want to solve it somehow. So I, I give that kind of education to athletes about 
what anxiety is. It's not some mysterious force inside of you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply you are housed in this body, in this vessel that has this alert system. Now you can do what you want with this alert signal. It's sort of like a light on the dashboard of your car. Like, oh, okay, there's anxiety. And so I know it, it seems easy to talk about, but when you're feeling it, it feels really real and very miserable. But the first step is getting that distance and, and awareness of the purpose for anxiety. So you kind of depersonalize yourself from the anxiety. And right there, that makes it a little bit less, um, less intense. But I say, you know, action cures anxiety. You ask yourself, okay, I'm getting the signal of anxiety. So maybe Martha before her race, uh, feeling like oh, I'm feeling really, really anxious, right? And saying, well, okay, there's a signal there. What is that? Oh, I'm looking at the people that are up in the front. They look really fit. They got the newest clothes on, all this kind of stuff. Oh, is this anxiety? This, this must be this, you know, related to this false belief that uh, everyone has to be like those people. Oh, okay. So the action for me now then is to focus on my bullet point of lit, list of why I love doing the sport. That's my action. So you always ask yourself when you're feeling anxiety, what is the action I could take right now? What's the action I need to take? And a lot of people don't do that. They just get caught up in the anxiety and I don't blame them. It, it feels terrible. You're like, how can I get out of this anxiety? And that sometimes makes it even worse. But if you ask yourself, what is the action? What is this anxiety you know, asking me to do? Or even better, what is the action I want to take from this information? I'm in control. I'm the observer. What's the action I need to take? And if you find out what that is, then the anxiety is going to go away or at least diminish. So like for you, if you look at your bullet point list of why you love running and you go, ah, like right there, you're probably going to diminish your anxiety by 50% right there. And it's probably going to still be a little bit because you, you've been amped up for a while and those you know, cortisol and stress hormones are in your bloodstream. So you're not going to feel completely chilled, but um, asking yourself, yeah, what, what's the action I need to take right now? And the more you practice that, the easier you're going to alleviate that anxiety uh, quicker and quicker. The anxiety is never going to go away because it's this automatic signal from your body. So we're wired for survival. So I tell people, you're never ever going to not feel anxious or not feel a little bit depressed you're just going to catch yourself quicker and quicker, be in control and get yourself out of that, that zone. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you find it difficult for runners and other athletes to put aside guilt being away from their families to take time to work out or run? Mm, yeah. Guilt does definitely comes up in the athletes I work with. Uh, you know, the, the solution for that is again, being transparent about that. Of, of asking family and friends like, Hey, even just literally, Hey, I'm feeling kind of guilty about not spending time with you all. And if the, the answer back from them is, you know, honestly, a genuine like, Hey, don't worry about it. We, we support what you're doing. Like we love to see you enjoy this. It makes us feel happy. Sometimes those are some good answers. If the answer is like, yeah, you're really being selfish and, um, this is a problem, say maybe in a marriage or something, then again, that's a signal for maybe some marriage counseling, right? So that you could work, work things out. Um, so the guilt, you know, I'll call guilt an action signal too. Like what, what do you need to do with this? If you carry it around with you and stew in it and suffer, that doesn't 
do anybody any good. So I would say, where's the guilt coming from? Okay, well, let me talk to my family members and see if my fear really is truthful. That's what I would suggest. I've seen problems. In, I, I had problems in past relationships over that. So that's why I'm single yeah. and happy. <laughs> I get to yeah, do that. Fair enough. Sure. Yeah. What do you mean by saying choose purpose over pleasure? Yeah. Uh, I, I think you talked, alluded to this earlier about this. Okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're really comfortable. I, I think in, in modern society, we're really kind of brainwashed that we, we need comfort. You know, we need to have that chocolate cake before we go to bed. We need, um, we need to hit the snooze button. Um, that, that somehow, you know, suffering is, is horrible and you, you have to seek pleasure. So I say, sir, you know, purpose over pleasure, meaning that if you go about your day in a growth mindset of what can I do or everything that I'm doing that maybe in the moment is not pleasurable, but has a purpose to it. So uh, getting up a little bit earlier so that you're not rushed in the morning is purpose driven behavior. It's not pleasure seeking behavior. Pleasure seeking would be, I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to, you know, kind of lay around in my sweats until 10 AM or whatever it is that, but that's not growth oriented. So if you're thinking about it, it, I tell athletes, like do an audit during the day, check out how many times you are doing a purpose driven activity, which is geared towards growth. Or if you're doing a pleasure seeking uh, behavior that's geared towards uh, relief or like somehow I need, you know, I need this chocolate cake or something. So a lot of times athletes will come back to me and they say, Hey, I did, you know, this, this audit. And I realized there's a lot of this temporary pleasure seeking behavior. Like I wanted to watch, um, you know, binge on Netflix when I know I need to, you know, train the next day. And I realized that that's just simply pleasure seeking behavior without any purpose. And so the athletes will come back, they'll give me this list and they'll audit things and they'll start to slowly cut out this pleasure seeking momentary behaviors and replace it with purpose driven activities. Like maybe instead of watching Netflix, they um, journal about themselves or maybe they shoot um, a video of themselves for social media, something that's always purpose driven. And they'll, they'll realize after a while that they love the purpose driven activities much more than this pleasure seeking activities. Uh, so that's what I mean by, you know, purpose over pleasure. That is, I, I love that. I, I enjoy, I, I know you probably find this, you still cycle, right? Yes. Yes. So I, I love, I, I work in an in urgent care clinic and, and a couple of days a week, uh, I work 12 hour days and I still, after one of my 12 hour days, I still go to the gym after work and my coworkers think I'm crazy, but I still have to go to get strength training in. I can't, I'm not going to run, yep. but because it's just too late, but I can still do some strength training and still get my leg and my core work in. Yeah. And then I go home and then I'm a, half an hour later, I'm asleep. <laughs> I'm so yeah. tired, but Perfect. I still, but I still do it because I got to do it. Yeah. And, and I love that. And, and then they always, they ask me how, how, how was your run? And I get my long runs in and I, I love pushing myself. I'm not young either. I'm, I'm 63. So it's like, I still do the stuff. I go out and I get my long runs in and yeah, it hurts, but I like that feeling. I love the feeling of pushing myself past what I think I can do. And I, 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 yeah, I could not do this. I could just 
you know, just be a vegetable on a couch if I want to, but I'm not going to, that's not who I am. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, if you think about what our bodies are designed for, they're not designed to be sitting on a couch watching TV. They're nope. designed to be moving. And so, you know, your coworkers, oh, you know, Martha's crazy. She's going to go out and do, you know, weights in the gym. What? Yeah. That's just them sort of in that hypnosis of uh, any, any kind of um, suffering mm-hmm. is bad, right? But yep. suffering for, for a purpose is great and it makes you feel great. And so. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels good. It And yeah, sure. It's, 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 it's hard, but I like hard. I like physical toughness. It feels good to do that. And you feel so much better. Your body feels better being stronger than it does being weak. It just does. It definitely does. You know, it makes me think I, I just recently took a vacation and I took, um, got about a week and a half off of exercise. I mean, I was doing a couple of workouts and when I came back, it was just, I felt so out of shape and I felt yeah. so grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, that's the normal thing to do. You're supposed to take a vacation and supposed to, you know, you know, do day drinking and, and sit around and not do anything. And, you know, a couple of days of that was fine. Um, but I just realized how there's just so much information out of the, in, out there about what you're supposed to do with your yeah. activity level. Right. And yep. so. Yeah, I I love I have to exercise. It just makes me feel good. You have to plan your vacation around a race. That's what I do. <laughs> so oh, there's a race out of town. I'll do the race, and then I can then I can yeah. justify eating too much. <laughs> that's, that's a good tip. I like that. Yep, yeah, yeah, and then I don't have to run like I'm doing a, a timed race out of town at the end of the month. So uh, uh, it's a 12 hour race. So I'll get a bunch of miles in, and then I don't have to run the next day, and I can justify. Eating a Denny's for breakfast in the morning. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So what are the most common problems or or not problems? I'm not going to say problems. What are the most common uh, topics or themes that you see in your in athletes? Yeah, uh, anxiety is a big one, sort of performance anxiety. Um, another uh, big one is leveling up. So athletes who are at kind of a plateau, and say maybe they want to move to the next level in their sport. That's, that's another big one. Um, and then I'd say the other one is, um, is just general personal life of things mm-hmm. that may be out of balance in their personal life. And, and the, the sports, as we talked about earlier, can be used as a way to sort of cover that up. Um, so those are the three, three big ones mm-hmm. there. And we talked a little bit about how to deal with anxiety. Um, yep. leveling up um, when people are, um, athletes are in a plateau. That is what I love working with athletes on. We could talk a little bit about that if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Please. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, you know, may- maybe for you leveling up might be getting, um, you know, a better, better time in, in a particular distance, mm-hmm. maybe for another athlete. Uh, so I work with a lot of bike racers. There's, um, there's categories in amateur cycling in the United States. It goes from category five all the way up to category one. And the beginning level is category five. So sometimes what I'll see with uh, bicycle racers is they'll get up to category four or three and they'll kind of say, ah, like that's good enough. Like I can't go any higher. I don't really want to go any higher than that. But part of them does. And so the, there's kind of this internal conflict about I call it like an, a mini identity crisis in your athletic career of 
uh, do do I really want to get up to those higher levels? Because it what would happen? And I think the the deep fear for some athletes why they get stuck at a plateau is they say, well, what would happen if I level up and I can't hack it? I can't make it. It'll be so embarrassing. Everyone will judge me. I'll have to get knocked back down to the level. It'll just be very shameful. These kinds of things, even though they're irrational, come up for the athlete when they want to level up like to the next plateau. So there's this fear of failure. When you're at the the lower divisions, it's kind of like there's not that much pressure. Like if you're doing your first marathon, maybe to just to finish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably be lower anxiety. Uh, you're going to, you're going to get through it because like you have this lower kind of goal, not that there's nothing yeah. wrong with just finishing with this awesome goal, but with leveling up, there is this fear of not being able to make it and kind of the shame that might come from not, not making it at that level. So, um, I work with athletes a lot around, around that of this, this concept of fail forward. You may have heard this phrase before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so again, if, if the athlete is all about growth and that's the main, main purpose of their sport of always wanting to grow, uh, and whatever, whatever that means to them, if, if they're leveling up, there could be some failures, but you fail forward. You say, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm, and if you even think about like, if someone's starting out at a low level or if you're first time, a couple times running, you, you know, you finish your marathon and you have this, you know, do it in four hours or something or five hours or something like that. And if then you run your next one and it's, you know, it's, it's less time. You think about every time that you level up, if at that lower level, you almost couldn't imagine yourself with this, with this higher performance. I don't know if that's happened for you where you've um, surprised yourself with a particular run that you did and, and did better than you thought. Um, that's, that's you naturally leveling up. But when athletes want to push themselves to really level up, they run into all that, that, that fear of failure. Yeah. And so I work with, with them around um, pushing through that fear of failure and re- reframing it as failing forward. Like, of course, you're going to have some failures, but you're, you're going to level up naturally if you keep going, going for it and you don't quit. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. Tell them if, if they really can't do that, tell them to, to get into ultra running because the older you get, the better you are at ultra running. And, and here's the thing. We, there are age group winners in ultra running. So as, as soon as you jump into it, as soon as you like go from, from 39 to 40, you're in a new age group or from 49 to 50, you're in a new age group. And so you have more of a chance to to win your age group i may win my age group i may be one of two or even one of one people in my age group so i win but hey you still win and and, um like the the average the median age of the badwater racers badwater 135 135 mile race which is one of the toughest races in in the world where you start at death valley 300 feet below sea level and you end at the foot of Mount Whitney, which is what 7,000 feet above in July. So the temperature is like 120 degrees. Um, The average age was like 47. Yeah. So if that, that's, that's how a lot of runners who, who were used to 
race fast, like in marathons, that they they gradually get into trail running because it's easier on the legs and, and feet anyway. I mean, the the pavement is harsh. And then they realize that ultra in ultra running, there's a lot of wa- well, pay, bad water's pavement, but but they get into trails and they there's a lot of walking in ult, in ultras. You you go farther, but you go slower. <clears throat> and um, there's also, like I said, there's age group winners. Yeah. So I mean, it's yeah, tougher, some- but it's but it's a different type of tough, you know. Yeah. Well, well that makes me think, Martha. I actually um, I climbed uh, to the top of Mount Whitney. Oh, there you time. go. Yeah. And this was at like when I was in pretty fit bicycle racing shape and, you know, a buddy of mine who was older than me, um, he was, we got towards the top and he started just pulling away <laughs> you know? and he was not, not that fast in, in, in bike racing, but he just had, he was older, he had this endurance um, and he did more of that kind of stuff of playing the long game. So, I mean, there's definitely something for everyone. Yeah. In, in, yeah. In, in for sure, yeah. Well, it's amazing. I do these races, and I see these guys who are in their seventies and eighties, and they just they kick butt. It's just incredible what they do, and it's like, wow, all right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just amazing. They they you know they're not they're not the fastest, but they're not the slowest either. They just keep going, and uh, and and a lot of it is is attitude. They're mm-hmm. just some of the most positive, friendliest, nicest people you'll ever meet. Yeah. And they just, no matter what it is, they just know that they're going to do it. And that's, that's it. I love that. You know, it, it, it makes me wonder if there's, if there's the, you know, an advantage to being older in terms of your life experience and wisdom and perseverance and, and these old people who are in their sixties, seventies, eighties, where they're able to, do a really long distance like that because they've dealt with adversity in their lives and they had their patient, whereas maybe like a 20 year old would drop out of a, of the bad water, right? Like this is ridiculous. <laughs> I've, I've never had to deal with anything as adverse as this, you know, this is crazy. Whereas someone who's got a little more life experience might go, Hey, this is just like that time when, you know, a family member died or when I went through something really difficult and they're able to tap into that life experience. And that might be an advantage. I wonder. I think sometimes it is there. Now there are a lot of younger runners who do well. It just Mm -hmm. depends on your maturity as well. I, I had, I had someone on my show, uh, Stefan Fiendero, who's he's 21. Now he did, he's done. He started doing ultras in his teens and he was, but of course they did very safely and made sure that he was physically able to do it. So he's done really tough races, but he, I think he's an exception to the rule, but he has a very, he has a maturity that a lot of people his age don't have. So he may be the exception. Right. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you one last question. How important is goal setting? It is huge. It is huge. Um, and I, I think there's, um, there's like right way and a wrong way to do it. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, the wrong way I think is maybe the way that your high school coach taught you or the way that you kind of learned secondhand from a buddy or something like that, which is just, um, right, writing down, writing down goals really without having a larger purpose behind them. Um, I think that is the biggest mistake. So I'll tell you the right way to set goals is to, like we talked about earlier, what is your, what is the reason why you're doing your sport? Right. So, 
I, when I work with athletes, I have them write a mission statement. Like, why do you love, you know, ultra running? And they may come up right off the bat with like five reasons. I go, give me 20 reasons, like 20. Like, yeah, I really want you to stretch this out. And if they're, they're doing the full 20, they'll come up with stuff like it makes the world a better place because I create a ripple effect because someone watching sees me, they want to start running, they run, they, you know, someone's inspired by them, et cetera. So I get some thinking on a, a much bigger macro level of the reasons for their doing their, why they do their sport. And once they have that solidified and they hundred percent believe these reasons, why they're doing their sport, almost like a religion, then the goals become easy. You go, oh yeah, here's the goal that would be in alignment with my mission, right? Here's another goal that would be in alignment with my mission. And then it's, it's almost the goals are just going to complete themselves because you're so driven and there's no doubt in your mind why you're pursuing that goal. A lot of times people, are, you know, runners, any athlete will set a goal based on a whim, like because mm-hmm. their teammate did it or because they think that they should or something like that. And they're not, there's really not a lot of substance behind that goal. So if, again, if you're, if you do your mission statement and you, pick goals that align with that, then you're going, you're pretty much going to meet them. It's just, it's like a foregone conclusion. So. Right. That makes so much sense. I really like that. And I'm going to put that to use in my, in my running, actually, I really like making as many reasons as you can. And that, that, that totally solidifies what we do and why we're doing it. That's excellent. Very, very great. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and explaining what you do and why you do it because it's really needed. And if we could get like a hundred more of you, that would really help out, help out the world of sports. That's for sure. Well, I appreciate that, Martha. And it's been really a pleasure talking with you. I love the name of your podcast, Martha Runs the World. <laughs> it's, it's just so awesome. So, um, the, you're doing you're doing great work, and I listened to a couple of your episodes, and I think it's really helping a lot of people. Awesome, thank you so much, and you have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. Thank you. That was Michael Seeley. Thank you so much, Michael, and I will have all his links on the website MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. Okay, now hopefully I will get over my anxiety, or maybe a little bit get over it. Maybe it'll help a little bit. Okay, speaking of races, well, I did a virtual race over the weekend. I did the 13th for Friday the 13th virtual race. I had such a cool t-shirt and medal. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I needed to do 13 miles anyway for my training run for this 50K that I'm doing in December. So I decided ah, to do this and earn some bling. Why not? It's a cute medal. Okay, for me, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> it has, it has, um, Friday, you know, the, the movie, you know, Friday the 13th that has that on there. And then it has Jason chasing a runner with a knife. <laughs> That's what I think is cute. <laughs> it is cute. Come on. It's cute. All right. So, so I did that and it, it was really cold the morning that I went out. Okay. For us in San Francisco, it was cold. It really was. I went out in my shorts and and a short sleeve shirt. I did bring a long sleeve shirt to change into afterwards. 
because I was going to watch the Blue Angels because it's been Fleet Week here and the Blue Angels perform. So I was going to watch them afterwards. So I took a long sleeve shirt so I could chill afterwards. Well, it was so cold and I never got warm. After like five miles, I was still freezing. So I put the so I went into the one of the uh, the public restroom and I put the long sleeve shirt under my short sleeve, which was, felt much better. My legs don't usually get that cold, so I have to be pretty pretty cold. It has to be pretty low temperature for me to switch to long pants. I felt much better with the long sleeve shirt underneath. So the first ten miles went great, no problems. It was really a nice, nice run. And then all of a sudden I started to feel my hip. Now, when you have arthritis in your in your hips, it can manifest in different ways. My right hip, the pain came out in my quads, so in my right quad area. I never I hardly ever felt it in the hip itself. You can get hip pain, you can get pain from your hips it from your knees on up. It doesn't have to be in your hip area. You can feel it for, in your knees. This hip pain on my left is totally different. I feel it in my glute area and I felt it in my knee as well. And I know it was from the, it's from the hip because I've never felt knee pain before. So I so it started a little bit. It was just a little bit of pain, and I said, "Oh, oh, here it comes." So I would walk when I felt it, and then when it went away, I started running again, and it went away pretty well, okay. And then I would just run, walk for a while, but then in the last two miles, well, that was good, okay. I guess the last mile, I guess it was just I just walked because the pain got really bad, and walking just felt better. So this, so the left hip is just totally different than the right. The right hip was gradual. It was a gradual decline. It took a while before to feel bad. Yesterday, I don't know, maybe it was because it was so cold or damp or something. I don't know. But it really hurt. So I'm going to see how this feels because I've got some long runs and I've got a 50K to do in December. So I'm going to see if I can even do that or not. It was kind of weird yesterday. It was not a great run. I mean, I'm glad I got it done, but I don't know. A little trepidatious at this point. My next real long run is in two weeks, so we'll see how that goes, and I'll let you know. All right, so that is it. The website address is MarthaRunsTheWorld.com. You can check out everything for Michael there or the Patreon. If you could become a patron, Patreon patron there. You can buy me a cup of coffee. Uh, my email is MarthaRunsTheWorld at gmail.com. And until next week, let's tie up our shoelaces and go for a run. <laughs>